You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. All right, guys. Thanks for joining in on the Two Bald Biologists podcast. Before we get going, this is uh, still new to this, and I just want to thank everybody for their support and their emails, and it's been kind of crazy the last few weeks. Corey and I have been kind of overwhelmed with your feedback, and your questions have all been pretty good and, and very interesting, and a lot of the stuff that we're actually trying to get research done on. So it's been really neat to see what the feedback you guys have given us. We're actually going to address some of your questions towards the end of the podcast. So. Before we even get started, I just want to thank everybody for that because you guys have been great and we're really looking forward to building an even better relationship with you guys as we move forward. So keep those emails coming. What's our email address, Corey? TwoBaldBiologists at ncwildlife.org. And yes, I will add a word of thanks to the people that are listening and it's been really good. We've had a ton of responses, which has been a little surprising, but also good because we're learning a lot about our anglers. That's right. That's right. So it's great. Sometimes you got to be careful what you wish for, because if you guys weren't sending us emails, we'd be worried. And now that you are sending us emails, it's just a matter of us budgeting and time to get back with you. And we're trying to give everybody a response. So just bear with us and thank you again. So moving forward, we've got Matt Airy today. We're going to talk about bass and bass fishing and tournament fishing. Matt, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, so I'm Matt Airy. I fish the uh, Bassmaster Elite Series. Been uh, on the Elite Series for about four years. I guess my fourth season on the Elites. I fished at FLW for a little over a decade. So I've been doing it full-time now for, God, 14 years. Time flies. Didn't even realize it was that long. I was sitting here counting up in my head. But yeah, full-time fisherman. Well, I say full-time fisherman. My full-time truck driver, part-time fisherman is what I tell everybody because uh, we travel all over the country. Just got back from Texas, headed to Alabama next week. And then we actually get to go out to South Dakota this year, which will be a new new venture for me, new place. Looking forward to that. So yeah, that's what I do. Fish for a living, get to chase little green and brown fish all over the country. And uh, it truly is my dream. It was my dream when I was five years old and still chasing it to this day. So That's pretty interesting. Corey knows, but Matt, I did my master's research on bass tournament, displacement, mortality, that kind of stuff. The very first work that had been done on tournament impacts on spotted bass. So that was pretty, pretty interesting project. Yeah, I bet. And it was pretty awesome being a fisherman to do fisheries research on something truly fishing related. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm jealous of that because there's a lot of times I got a lot of questions about why did that bass do this? Why does this, you know, and. Being able to actually do the hands-on research would be, uh, shoot, that'd be priceless for me. Oh, yeah. I might I mean, have to join you sometime on some of that. Come on. <laughs> if the commission allows you pro bass fishermen to join y'all in some research projects, that'd be a lot of fun. We might be able to make that Squeeze happen. Squeeze that in. <laughs> so, not a problem at all. But, yeah, so this spring has really got me keyed up on bass fishing, especially because this spring I was doing some work on the Noose River, and we saw some really big fish. And anytime you see big fish, if you don't get excited— something wrong with you yeah, you know absolutely. We, we, we shocked up a 12 pound bass which was the biggest oh bass 
I think that has ever been collected in the coast, you know, on the Noose River. So that's a huge river fish. That's you a know. giant river fish. I grew up on the Noose River and it was not known for bass fishing during my childhood. But man, here lately, it has been... It's still not known by many for bass fishing. We're probably going to get some emails about this. Like, you're going to send about me some it. coordinates where you shocked up that. We 12. can talk about that. We but yeah, it's that. amazing <laughs> the bass that's being produced out of the lower noose right now. Yeah. I mean, really, we're in a just, you know, a side, but we're in this neat thing in the coast right now because we've had some hurricanes in the past about five or six years ago, but really, we're in this relatively consistent weather pattern. And the bass have been growing like gangbusters, and so it's really good. So just on a side, some of the work that I've been doing has gotten me really keyed up on bass and bass fishing and getting the word out to our anglers. So so are you from North Carolina originally, Matt? I am originally from Shelby, North Carolina, yep. Which is where we are today. Yeah. Yeah, right. we're on the road, Ben. <laughs> Seems like a nice place. Y'all are kind enough to drive down here. I know my schedule's crazy, as is y'all's, and uh, we're in between events right now. I've got a six-day break. In the meantime, we've had a couple of dance recitals this week for my daughters. We've got a birthday party Saturday, and I was actually cutting the horse pastures when y'all pulled in this morning and tried to keep knocking some work out. But yeah, I am from Shelby, North Carolina. I grew up on a little lake here called Moss Lake. So I had the uh, fortune of growing up on a, a lake where I was able to wet a line about every day after school. I'd come home, and I told this story actually on stage at the Classic last year, but I started fishing in a paddle boat. You know, I'd put my life jacket on. I'd go out and fish in a paddle boat. I'd get my homework done, of course, first. You know, that's what we did. And uh, I'd go fish until mom would holler at me to come in for dinner. And I'd throw my life jacket on. I'd paddle around the cove. If I caught, you know, a large mouth or something of any size, I'd put it in the opposite side of the paddle boat where I'd just dump a bunch of water with a bucket. And that was kind of my live well. And I'd take it over there and mom would take pictures of it and I'd turn it back loose. That's my roots. I grew up bass fishing. I knew when I was five or six years old, it's what I wanted to do. And I'm just one of the lucky ones, I guess, that I got to do it for a living. Now, that's pretty interesting because, you know, I grew up on the banks of the Roanoke River catching striped bass and all that stuff. And it was my interest in fishing that really led me towards becoming a fish biologist once I started learning more and more about what they do. And, you know, I've been said it multiple times now, but the reason I came for fish balls is because I wanted to catch more fish. Right. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> How can I learn more and catch more fish was really all it was. Now, the, the conservation is wonderful. It's great. And it's definitely needed. But the initial reason was, hey, let's find out more about maybe if I learned a little bit more, I can catch a few more fish. So that's one of the neat things. I'm going to skip ahead in my little agenda here, but there's only a few, if you have a love for fishing, there's only a few different ways you can make a career in it. You know, you can become a professional fisherman or guide or something like that, own a tackle store or work for a tackle company, or you can become a fish biologist. Everybody else does it. It's not necessarily ingrained in their day-to-day activities like, like it can be for us. So there's a little bit of a common thread there. And I I just wanted you to, what's it like, you know, to have a career in fisheries? Well, like I said, it is a dream come true and I still have to pinch myself sometimes, but, you know, I've got a family now. I've got two young girls, Reese and Wren. And, you know, I used to fish and it was my passion to to fish every day and, and spend all my time on the water. And it still is. And I wouldn't have it any other way, but you know, when I'm not traveling fishing tournaments or doing promotional work for sponsors or traveling and doing that thing, I'm at home being a dad and, and a husband first and foremost. And unless my kids kind of initiate, you know, I don't force them to go fishing or anything like that because I don't care that much to go fishing when I'm in town now because, you know, I'm fishing <laughs> so much. I mean, you know, we go to a tournament and we're 70, 80 hours on the water a week and 
it's not burnt me out. I love the fellowship. I love the competition. You know, competition is really what drives me. I was always real competitive as a kid and had an older brother and a younger brother, and I just wanted to beat them and didn't matter what, you know, I just wanted to win. So it's still a lot of fun, but it's one of those things that it's truly a job. And I know some people out there hear that and they're like, oh, you, you know, some people think we go out there and we throw a cork in the water with an earthworm under it, crack open a Bud Light or something and wait for it to go under. And I said, it's not exactly like that. And I'll come home from a tournament and I'll be wore out. My buddies will pick on me. I said, just go with me to an event one time. Just ride with me. And you come home and, you know, it's not like working a nine to five job at the office or something. I said, you go out there and you put in 13, 14 hour days on the water and practice. And then you go straight into the tournament. Like with bass, you know, we don't even have off days. So we'll start practice for uh, Pickwick Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, start tournament Thursday morning. You make it to the final day. You fish seven days in a row, you know, all day. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, a lot of dedication. And there's so many opportunities that kids have now to pursue a career in fishing or just in the industry in general with what the colleges and things across the country are offering scholarships to go fishing. Yeah. That's amazing to me that that those opportunities are out there. We started a club here in the county just this past year, 30-something kids, middle school and high school. They're competing in the high school tournaments and things like that. But a lot of those kids, they'll tell you they're not interested in necessarily pursuing a career as a professional angler but they want to pursue a career in the industry, whether it's becoming a biologist or working for the, you know, a resource officer or working in our industry as a sales rep or working with some of the fishing companies. But like you said, a lot of them, they just want to catch more fish. And if they could work in the industry and learn more about it and network and fellowship with the guy, I mean, because we have a great group of people, right? In this industry, we're pretty much everybody you meet's a, a good old boy or girl. I have a lot of females in the sport now too, which is cool, but it's a lot of fun traveling around and meeting new people and, and going to new fisheries and seeing the diversity of the fisheries in this country is one of the coolest things that I think I get to experience and how different the fisheries are. Yeah, I think there, Bill was talking about a common thread. You know, our days are a lot like that too. When we're working out in the field, it's a 60, 70, maybe even 80 hour week for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're up about time the sun gets up out on the water and we're working with fish. Now we're not fishing, but we're whether it's electro fishing or trap netting or whatever the gear might be, it's an all day affair. You're working all day outside and it's a long week. Yeah. <laughs> Our work goes in spits and spurts kind of thing, you know, like spring of the year for a lot of Ben's group, they're on the water four to five days a week and they'll do that for eight weeks, you know, eight weeks straight. One of the things you learn in this field is you better be prepared for that. The first time you do that for real over an extended period of time, it'll wear you down. Yeah. It's a job at the end of the day. But still, at the same time, you're outside. You get to enjoy what you're doing. You're learning about things that you're learning about. I wouldn't trade it for the world at this point. I wouldn't either. Even in the position I'm in now, which is totally different. I'm not on the water all the time, but I still wouldn't trade it for the world. It's one of the best careers. and It was a good decision. Well, if you enjoy your job, you'll never work a day in your life. That's what I've always been told. So, yeah. Matt, you study fish behavior. We study fish behavior. Fish behavior is most active first thing in the morning <laughs> yeah, and last thing in the evening, which makes for long days. That's absolutely correct. It's really interesting to kind of look at that different perspective for sure and where that goes and how it translates between the two different groups. You know, one of the neatest things, and it is work, you know, like you said, I mean, there are days where it can be a bit of a grind. And I mean, electrofishing is one of the coolest things a human can do that's interested in fish. Yeah. I mean, yep. you get to see fish. They're coming out of the water. You see fish that we as anglers never see. Yeah. It gets our feelings hurt a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, 
and species <laughs> that we as anglers never see. Things like different sucker species and stuff like that. You just would have no idea. And you didn't even know they were there. Yeah. Or later when I'm looking at somebody's live scope and they're like, there's fish down there. I'm like, they may not be the fish we want them to be. Right. Yeah. Which as an angler, you're never thinking, well, that's probably a bunch of suckers down there. You're thinking, why can't I catch these bass or those, you know, whatever I'm looking for that day. So it's definitely neat, but it's definitely after the fourth 60 hour week in a row. <laughs> it's a lot, even as cool as it is, it's a lot like work. Yeah. You know? So, but that's pretty cool. So, as far as the science goes, obviously, we've, I fish a lot. Corey fishes a lot. You clearly fish a lot, but we're kind of science nerds. And that's kind of how we found our foothold into this field. As far as the science goes, what do you incorporate into your fishing? What are you looking for? as far as data or something along those lines when you're fishing? Well, when I go to a, especially a new body of water that I'm not familiar with, we have in our pre-tournament packets and our uh, kind of our SOEs, which is our schedule of events, we have some details about what the length limits are going to be, what species are present, what species we can weigh in, which for us, it's only spotted bass, smallmouth, meanmouth, and largemouth predominantly. If we go somewhere that has shoal bass, we're typically allowed to weigh in shoal bass too, which I think Chattahoochee River maybe might be one of the only places that has them. I look at just, you know, forage availability in the fishery. I try to study the different types of cover. Does it have grass? Does it not have grass? Does it have timber? Does it not have timber? Water depths. I look at as many fishing reports and things like that online, but you just take those with a grain of salt because never do we go anywhere where it, history repeats itself just doesn't happen. You know, our fisheries change so much year in and year out, especially with the weather patterns and hurricanes and storms and whatever. But I try to look at, uh, you know, some history, but as far as the current situation, I try to get exactly what kind of condition is the body of water in right now. And is it low? Is it high? Have they had a lot of rain? And going back to the species of fish that I'm going to be chasing, water clarities, current water temps, forage availability, things like that. That goes a lot into my melting pot to prep for a tournament. But there again, you learn all that and then you go and the fish end up doing the exact opposite of what you think they're going to do. And and then we start pulling our hair out because they, they never do they never do what you expect. You know, you can't get a handbook 101 on how to catch bass and it work everywhere you go. Because I've read every magazine there is out there, every Bassmaster magazine, every whatever in, in all my life. And, you know, there's always a tournament where they just don't do exactly what they're supposed to do. And we learned the hard way by getting our teeth kicked in in that event. So always learning, always learning. Been doing it a long time, but keeping an open mind and always, always being willing to learn something new every day you go out is important in our career. Sure. Both when I'm planning my field work, doing my fish sampling, and also when I'm fishing, I spend a lot of time, one, just looking at maps, trying to figure out where would be good places to fish, where is the quality habitat. You know, we're not trying to bias our sample by only shocking those areas or sampling those areas, but it's good to know. Right. And it helps you kind of figure things out. I mean, Google Earth is awesome. Like you can just go on Google Earth, scroll back in the history and see what it looked like 10 years ago. You know, some of the little tricks you can get it during high water and low water situations. And even you can find some where if you find one where it's 10 or 12 feet low, jackpot, you know, in some of these places. So, (laughs) oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a huge tool. You know, we have other stuff that we have access to, but a lot of times that's the simplest and easiest thing to look at. Also, I spend a lot of time looking at, and these are all over the country, some USGS gauges where I'm looking at hydrology of high water, low water, water temperature, right. that kind of thing, and just kind of studying how some of those variables are react in an area, given a different flow or something like that. And it, 
it really kind of helps me kind of put some of those pieces together on both sides of whether I'm fishing or whether I'm doing fish surveys is trying to explain what's going on. So it's pretty neat. Yeah, there's a lot of different resources now that we can use, especially with the internet. I wasn't going to talk exactly about searching those low water situations. You don't want to give up all the goods, but since you mentioned it, that's a big, big deal for us going back. And it might be five years, might be 10 years, might be 15 years. But if they're old rock formations, roadbeds, unmarked bridges, you know, whatever, things like that can be really priceless for us as anglers and biologists. You do your research and uh, it makes us more efficient at our job. Yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of time exploring different areas, doing different things, even when we're doing our surveys, just because I've said it about myself, I tell all my people, you know, we should never get a phone call with a person asking a question about a piece of water. Our answer should never be, I don't know, we hadn't been there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So we have to spend a lot of time to go to a lot of places. And sometimes we find ourselves in really obscure places. And the first thing I do when I get home is I'm on the map looking at it like, okay, exactly where was I? What does this look like? What feeds this? And to be honest, sometimes it helps me find a little fishing hole or two along the way. Other, Absolutely. Other times, you know. <laughs> you have a dual purpose. I know that's right. you're that's a fisherman. Right. You have a dual purpose that's right. out there. Corey, you got anything to add to that? No, I'm sitting here listening to two of y'all talk a lot, which is great. And I'm learning as I go. But when I started working in the field, what I was doing was electrofishing for bass on reservoirs. You know, I started in District 5, so that's the North Central Piedmont, so places like Jordan Lake and some of those other lakes around that area. That's where I was working a lot. And all the things you were just talking about, water temp, habitat, those are all the same things that Ben and I are looking for all the time when it comes to going out and sampling largemouth in particular, is that I can go to places on Jordan Lake and I can electrofish and I will not see a bass for probably two days if I sat there and did it. Just go to the riprap, right? Well, yeah. You- <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what everybody does? That's true everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> or bridges, right? Riprap to be human-made is awesome habitat for bass. But then there's places like, I know if I look at it on a map and look at it, once I get there, I know this is really going to be really great bass habitat. It's funny you talk about, you know, it's embarrassing like somebody with electrofishing what you would see versus what you're fishing. And we get that a lot. Well, I went down that bank. I can remember, you know, I, was, I went down that bank. A fisherman would tell us, I went down that bank and I only caught one. There's no bass in here. <laughs> That's the worst thing you can say at the end there. Yeah. No bass in here. So let me show you. I'll go down that same bank and I might catch 45. It's just different. We're seeing not everything, but we're seeing a lot. And that's a little bit of different perspective that we get as biologists that anglers don't get. You know, just like you get perspectives that we don't get. You see things that we don't get. And so I guess my thought in my mind is if we have open dialogue with anglers, we learn a lot from you guys, but you can also learn from us because you're catching that one three-pounder off the point. Well, I'm catching 45 and they're, they range in size from six inches to eight pounds in that same zone area of the lake, you know? And so we're getting this wide range of different fish. I think that's one of the cool things about our job is we get to see things kind of a little bit behind the scenes that a lot of people don't get to see. And we get to see a lot of other cool species, but like when we're focusing on bass studies, it's like, we'll go out in a week at Jordan Lake, we'll catch 500, 600 bass in a week. That's how many fish we put our hands on in that period of time. And so when you put it down to raw numbers, you know, we see a lot of fish and we're going all over the lakes, not like we're in one little spot. 
we're covering the whole lake, just like Ben down on the coast is covering a large portion of a river. He's not just focused on one little area. That's a perspective I think as biologists, we get to see that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Very cool. The one thing I'll add, as far as the shocking goes, since we're talking about that, it's one of the coolest things you can do. It's nothing like stepping on the pedal and the water just erupting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, granted, you know, after doing it for as many years as I've doing it and the long days and stuff like that, sometimes I forget how cool it is. And then I think about like the very first time I did it and I'm like, this is amazing. Now, when y'all were shocking, you said six inches to eight pounds. So basically when you're shocking a zone, nothing, I mean, everything's coming, right? It depends on the field. There's a lot of variables that play into it. Sometimes we get smaller fish better than bigger fish, and it depends on the settings. I was going to say that's the setting of the power of the shock. And the I new guess, boxes right? we have is even more powerful. I mean, it's it's just like with depth finders and everything right, else. Yeah. The technology is growing in leaps and bounds, and so we have a lot more freedom to target certain things if that's what the project allows. You know, I was going to say with technology improvements, you'll be able to, so probably if you want to shot three to six pound largemouth in a certain area, you might one day be able just to do that, right? If they're where we can get to them. And that was one of the things I was going to say is I have shocked up as many 10 pound plus bass as I have caught, which is two and two. Yeah. So oh, wow. I was going to say, man, you, you've caught hundreds of 10 pounders. No, but <laughs> no, well, I'm thinking shocking, you know, you're, so is that just because of the, the rarity of a fish that size? They're rare. They normally, you know, and as you know, a lot of the time of year, they're not shallow. You know, these yeah. bigger fish are deep. And so they're sometimes out of the reach of our equipment, depending on which equipment we're using. So they're hard to find. They're rare. And so that definitely limits us. You know, there's a narrow window, and that's when we try to sample either immediately before the spawn or immediately after the spawn or even during the spawn, depending on the project of like when those fish are up shallow, when we can get them and get the best and most representative sample of what's there. And sometimes depending on the project, we're trying to do uniform statistical spread out where we're not trying to bias our sample by hitting just the really good spots. Yeah. Try not to target the honey hole. Yeah. Other times when the job is, Hey, Ben, just go get us some bass. Well, okay, from my experience and knowledge of where fish are, they should be fish here. Then they're not. <laughs> I've encountered that scenario a few times. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> there should be bass, but they're not. You yeah, know, they're even with the shock there. boat, some days yeah. it can become like fishing. And another thing about large fish, one of the reasons we don't get a 10-pounder on a regular basis, it's not that they're not there. Ben's talking about them being deeper, and that's very true, but... They have the ability to get out of the field. It doesn't take much of a swath of that tail for their Very fickle. This is way down in the science nerd weeds, but if you're approaching it from a shocking boat and that fish is facing you, you have a really good chance of catching that fish because the electrical current actually draws the fish to you and its swimming motion will actually make it come towards you. But if that fish happens to be in a different orientation, it might be sideways or it might be facing away from you as you're approaching it and that electrical current hits it. Well, it's just like you. If you get hit in the butt with a cattle prod, you're not running towards it. You'll run away from it. And that's what the fish is going to do. It's going to swim away from it. really triggered my curiosity. I'm going to start using that. Is What's electrofishing <laughs> like? It's like being prodded in the butt. So I got a couple of questions. If, can I ask you a couple of questions no, about it? please do. Mainly shocking because... 
you know, really, like I said, triggered my curiosity with some of the comments y'all have made from your research. And so shocking, back to your point, Corey, does that make it a lot easier for y'all in a river system with heavy current? No. Okay. Sometimes it makes it harder. Sometimes it makes it a lot harder. Is that just because they sit, they tuck in behind current breaks and things, as opposed to if they were all sitting in a heavy current and they're having to face into the current, you're talking about facing them or hitting them from the tail, you would think it would make it a little bit more efficient. But but also the boat's moving so fast. Boat's moving quick. And also if a fish gets shocked and it, and it bubbles, it, what it's going to do, it puts it in almost like narcolepsy kind of thing. I mean, it literally knocks it out for just a brief second. If it floats up and it's in heavy current, yeah, it's, it's down gone. the river. And either you're going to chase that fish down the river and it depends on structure and everything that's in the river, whether you can get the boat safely in that place. So it really just depends. It can be more challenging. And the funny thing about the boat is, you know, it's got eight, 10 foot beams out in front of it. It's an 18 foot boat. So it drives like a 26 foot boat <laughs> yeah. with, with an 18 foot boat motor on the back of it. So it's not the most nimble piece right. of equipment. And I'll tell you right now, the biologists that are used to driving that boat in heavy current are some of the best boat drivers that I've ever seen. Yes. Because they can put boats in places with limited horsepower in a huge long boat that's pretty amazing really quick. And positioning everything for y'all. Well, it's all about, in that situation, it's all about knowing what your boat can do and knowing what the current is doing. Yeah. And thinking ahead. And of- thinking ahead. It's when you're driving in a river like that, electrofishing, generally you need to be two to three steps ahead or you're going to get yourself in a place, not necessarily in trouble, but maybe. <laughs> but maybe I've been trouble. in trouble. One good trouble. <laughs> one, I've one been good. in one real good trouble. Well, I got knocked down in the boat one time, but we were night fishing. And so you just can't, once you doing well, good. <laughs> well, no, I mean, in terms of like what I thought was somewhat trouble, we were actually night electrician for walleye up on Gaston and it's in the riverine section and there's trees hanging out all over the river and you're focusing your vision down. Right. And the driver is kind of trying to focus on everything around. And I was on the front of the boat and I heard d- and I didn't hear duck. I heard duck. <laughs> and, and after the duck hit, a tree limb about 12 to 14 inches hit me right upside the head and knocked oh. me right clean in the bottom of the boat. And it was just, I mean, there was nothing you can do. But but you can get in a boat in trouble. And Ben's been in those kinds of situations where the current's moving so quick. Yeah. I mean, ben does a lot more than I do. Reservoir electrofishing, that's easy peasy. So before we go too far. We're way down in the weeds, sorry. We're wearing lineman's gloves and life oh, jackets. Yes, yes, we're very safe. Ear protection, eye Safety protections. First. We're definitely, it sounds like it's the Wild West. Yeah, it's not super dangerous. It's, it's not, not like that. that. We're probably making, exaggerating a little bit maybe uh, on the far end of what we actually do. Yeah. But it is pretty neat and it is something that's really awesome. And yeah, to get with me, we'd love to have you out on the boat one day. Yeah, that'd be really cool. I, back to your comments. Something else that sparked my curiosity about the 10-pounders. You said you've only shocked up two. And this is just me talking as a bass fisherman from my experience. And size is a really big above-average fish is relative to the fishery, sure, right? Sure. So Jordan would be a 10-pounder. Norman would be a 5-pounder or 6-pounder or whatever. But when we catch, in my experience, in different places, even sometimes up north, but when you catch a, a really above-average fish, not a 3-pounder at Norman, but a 6-pounder, and not during the spawn, taking the spawn out of the equation. A lot of those really big fish, and I've done this like at St. John's River in Florida where I've caught a nine or 10 pounder in practice and 
lake fork and and I'm talking like way above average fish, right? They seem to be very nomadic. They seem to be more like rogue fish. When you're getting in the areas with the high numbers of fish, which is where y'all like to concentrate your shocking efforts, you get more of that average size or that wide range of smaller than average fish, right? When you see a giant, does it seem to be more isolated? Because to your point, you rarely see them. So I do have a story about that. Okay. I just want to know if these giants that we're chasing, sometimes these true giants, yeah. that it seems to me that a lot of the guys that do it like on the West Coast and things like that, they're really targeting individual fish as opposed to big schools of fish. And in our experience, I can relate because for years and years, it seems like when I catch a true giant, it is very isolated and I don't get a ton of bites around that specific area necessarily. So in thinking about this story, I just realized I was wrong. Complete fabrication. I haven't <laughs> shocked up two 10-pounders. Let's not lie on the podcast. I've shocked up three. Oh, uh, you liar. You liar. <laughs> Slight underestimation. I've only yeah. shocked up two. And y'all been shocking how long? 20 years. So the first two that I shocked up, the ones I caught were in Alabama. The ones I've shocked up have been in North Carolina. So okay. that kind of throws yeah. things out of whack a little bit too. But both states are, you know, 10 pounders. Of- right. You should be able to find one somewhere. So the first two that I shocked up were about a year apart and they were about 30 yards apart. Could have been the same fish. All the, my friends and stuff that'll tell me a story about, oh, it's the same fish. I'm the first one. It's like, it wasn't the same fish. Until that happened, I'm like, I might have been the same fish. <laughs> you know? So I fell victim to my well, own what time trap. Got, now, I got to ask, what time of year was that? When I, we see the big ones at the coast, most of the time it's in the spring. Okay. And most of the time it's associated around the blueback heron run. Okay. Okay. You get these pork chops swimming around the water, these nice forage that are six to eight inches long that we're doing a lot of work on restoring. And the bass. The heron. The heron. Yeah. yeah their numbers aren't near what they used to be. That's probably a podcast for a different day. Yeah, I was going to say, I got to talk about that for days myself. <laughs> I got questions for days anyway. No, and that's fine, but we'll probably do that one of these days. But yeah, we've got these migratory fish that come from the Bay of Fundy to the Noose River, to the Roanoke, to the, all of our coastal rivers. They run up the rivers to spawn, just like the shad do. And it, because of their size, they're the perfect prey item for, you know, and we see, I saw it when I was a biologist up on the show on. And I've seen it on the news that in that window during that heron run is when all of a sudden we see some really nice bass. It also coincides with the pre-spawn time frame. So it's kind of the perfect storm, really, in some of our coastal rivers. The reason I asked if it was around the spawn, because it seems to me, and I don't tag them and don't know that this is Susie or this is Bob over here, but a lot of bass seem to revisit the exact same spawning grounds year in and year out. You know, a lot of the same fish. And I'm sure y'all have done the research to where you've tagged and or tracked some fish throughout spawning seasons. And do y'all see that? Do you see fish visiting almost, unless the habitat drastically changes, do you see them visiting the same pocket, the same cove, the same turn, the same lay down if it's still there? You want to take this one or you want me to take it? I'll let you take it. Okay. You want to know more than I do about this probably. It's a very cool topic to me because I can take you to certain places where there's always going to be a spawning fish on certain lakes, right? right? Is it the same females that visit those same beds year in and year out if everything stays consistent? I think it's a fascinating topic, to be honest. And it's hard to know if, without doing like sure enough tagging studies, it's hard to know if, okay, well, I caught a three-pounder 
on the bed this week or this year. And next year, I caught a four-pounder on the bed in the same spot. Maybe it was the same fish. Maybe it was. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that bass are fairly homebodies. So it could have been. There's also some research that says in certain systems, bass go all over the place. Yep. So that's kind of where it really starts to fall apart. Probably very water body dependent, really, yeah. more than anything. Y'all remember when Bassmaster, this has been it's 15 or 20 years ago, don't quote me on that, but when they used to, Jerry McGinnis was still alive and they were doing the Bassmaster tournaments and they would put those GPS trackers on a couple of the fish during the event and you could follow the bass. Susie went over here and laid under this dock and six of the elite guys fished right by her. And, you know, it was really neat to watch their patterns, but to your point, very rarely in a reservoir did they move very far. Right. They might go out to the channel, but they might slide back up to this dock. But it was neat to watch that, which they would only do like two or three bass a tournament. But that was really cool to see how they would move and and react and how many guys couldn't catch them too. <laughs> right. So in my master's research, I studied bass tournament effects. And the funny thing is, is we did a similar project in North Carolina and had very different results. So it's kind of interesting. But in the work that I did down on Lake Martin in Alabama, we saw short-term stockpiling of fish. So during the tournament season, there was a lot of bass that were out of one particular boat ramp. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, <laughs> which is an issue at many places. I mean, sure. not many places have multiple ramps that support large tournaments, you know. So you get this stockpiling effect. But what we saw was, yes, there was a stockpiling effect, but generally six to eight months, those fish kind of diffused out. Now... Did they go back to where they were caught? It didn't appear so from the research that we did. Now, when we did North Carolina, they left Edenton and they went right back up the Chobon where they were caught. Now, the question is, Edenton's right there on Avamal Sound with the salt wedge pushing it. They swam to fresher water, so it's hard to know. But in that system, they did seem to exhibit some sort of home and response. But in other systems, I think you take a deer... You turn it loose, the deer's going to find a place that suits it, and it'll be fine there, you know. So it kind of depends a lot on the system and the habitat in the system, too. And just having enough sample size to tease out outliers from the average, too, in some regards. So, yeah, so you don't get thrown off. And I would also say another thing that drives it is, believe it or not, is forage. Yeah. Fish aren't going to stand around if they're hungry. Right. If you have a stockpile, to Ben's point, they have to spread out to eat and survive. Right. Well, and that's what I told my tournament anglers when they asked me what I was finding. I said, what I've learned is I wouldn't leave right here yeah. until I have five fish. <laughs> a lot of anglers have seemed to learn that. They could, the catch and retreads, they call them. You know, as soon as I had five, then I'm going to go look for a big one. But... That's what a lot of that showed us. But we also did see some kind of stockpiling effects as far as decreased body condition. Now, whether that was from the density of the fish or from stress from being in the tournaments, kind of you can't really tease that out. But really, six months, they're over that. So it was probably a density. It alluded to it. We couldn't say it definitively, but it did look like there was a density thing. Now, Lake Martin, a lot like Norman, is really clear relatively low nutrient load so their conditions were kind of all over the map they weren't big and robust like myself so <laughs> yes understood i'm in the same camp you would think that's a combination because they're competing at the same time they've just been caught and i'm sure time of the year plays a role too well going back to your question about the 10 pounders are they solitary 
I really haven't given that a whole lot of thought in my career because we see so many bass. But of the two 10-pounders that I caught, it's kind of like Ben's scenario. They were definitely what I would consider pre-spawn as really early in the year. It'd be like mid-March or earlier. And they were on deep points, and that's where they were. And they were by themselves. There was nothing else there. It's not like you shot 25 two-pounders and then a 10 in the middle of them. If that was happening, I would think they were eating them. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, there you go. (laughs) One was at Jordan Lake. I can tell you exactly. I won't, but I I can tell you we'll exactly where, the show. where the point is. It's a rocky point that's probably pretty well known by a lot of folks, but it was sitting right off the end of that rocky point. And the other one was at Lake Devon in Oxford, which is in the northern part of the state. Lake so real, Devon. Yeah, it's real small. It's only 100 acres. And that fish was sitting right by itself. Out on public the lake? Or? Yeah. It's public. You can't put in a bass boat. It's like a John boat type lake. It's literally 100 acres. I mean, you can see from one end to the other pretty easily standing at the boat. 634 right? boats there next weekend. Well, <laughs> well, that was 20 years ago when the fishery oh. was a little different. The fishery's not that now. Um, gotcha. So the fishery changes as everything changes. And so that fish was just sitting on a point by itself. And boom, there it was. So I'd like to go back a little bit to, you said you have a spawning area and do fish use that spawning area every year? And again, we talked about individually, hard to know, but places that have good spawning habitat will likely, as long as they have water on them. Yes. Yeah, fish. That's a big deal in the spring. (laughs) I've been a fisheries biologist for a while now. I can tell you definitively that fish like water. You know, that's <laughs> you got it. <laughs> they do not like to be I'll dry. I have to agree. <laughs> Being dry is not compatible with life. But an area that has good spawning habitat will have spawning fish year in, year out. So if you find an area that has beds in it, it likely will have bedding activity the following year. Maybe more, maybe less. It's hard to know. And that's very obvious in some of the pond management stuff that I've done. If you put a load of pea gravel in your pond, the bass will spawn on that pea gravel. Right. Like, hands down, lights out. They'll spawn in your pond no matter what. But if you say, here is a place to spawn, they will use that area. So it's kind of the same thing. If they find an area in the wild that's good spawning habitat, they're going to use it every year. I fished an All-American back in 2007 on the Ohio River. And I don't know if y'all know anything about the Ohio River, but I can... It's big. That's all I it's know. Big. It's big. Well, so up in... This was out of Louisville, Kentucky. and. To this day, I will still fight anybody that argues with me that it is the worst fishery in the United States. But it has nothing to do with, you know, are they not doing their job there as wildlife people, biologists, whatever. It it comes down to, and I learned this when I was there during the spawn, and I don't know the scientific data to back this up. I can just tell you what I saw as an angler. The fish there, they seemed, well, let me go back and tell you what won the tournament. It was a three-day tournament, all-American, five fish a day. For three days, it was 15 pounds, and the guy had 15 fish. So it took five pounds a day. Then the guy ran 60-mile round trip. And the uh, first day I came in and I had four that weighed five pounds. Hank Cherry actually made this All-American with me. And it was, like I said, it was an 07. And he said, do you get them, Mary? And I said, man, I got like five pounds. He said, you might be leading this thing. Well, I didn't know the fishery was really that bad. And a 12-incher there, which is a keeper, is a good one. I mean, it really is. It's a good one. It seems to have a good number of fish in it, but it seems like their growth is stunted to an extent. But... It might be, I'm sure it's due to water quality. I don't know what other explanation may be for its availability because it seems to have good current, seems to have good cover. But one thing I noticed, and I was there pre-practicing during the spawn, that I could find very few beds and very few 
compatible bottom composition that they would prefer for spawning grounds. And I started noticing a few fish on top of stumps. Hmm. It was the only place I could ever find any spawners actually on top of a stump, Hmm. sitting in the stump. But if you think about it, and the fish will adapt to its environment, same with a deer and everything else, but it seemed to me like lack of spawning habitat maybe had something to do with the lack of the the quality of the fish too, and maybe the age class because maybe their spawns weren't as successful. Seemed to be a lot of fish in that place, but they all seemed to be between eight and 11 and a half inches or 11 and three quarter, right under whatever the size limit was because we caught a lot of those. But when I was there during the spawn, it seems like those bass were struggling to find a decent area to spawn in, much less decent cover to spawn around them. So it actually make their beds on top of the stumps. And if you've ever noticed that like Norman during the spawn, I've seen some really weird stuff where they'll spawn on top of a jet ski float. Mm. They'll make their bed on top of a, uh, boat lifts and things like that. It's pretty interesting how a fish will adapt to do their thing, but those are really smart fish to get on top of those boat lifts until the person goes down there and starts moving their boat. (laughs) Because if you think about it, it's super high in the water column, but it's over really deep water and it seems to be a lot easier for that bass to protect the bed that way, as opposed to having an open avenue for all the bluegill and everything else to get in there and invade the bed. But it's just interesting when you said that because that's the only place I've ever been to where I could literally not find a bass bed anywhere on the actual bottom itself, they were only on top of hard structures like a stump. But if I stuck my rod tip down in the bottom, this is not very scientific, but if I stick my rod down in the bottom, it'd just sink a foot. Just real mucky, real soft, real nasty. As a fish biologist, I too shove my rod tip in the bottom on occasion. (laughs) I feel a little bit better now. It's a very sophisticated piece of equipment. Check the bottom composition (laughs) and also the depth. So... What you're saying kind of makes me, I know I spent a little time saying how awesome North Carolina's coastal rivers are, but what you're talking about kind of makes me want to, I don't necessarily say walk that back a little bit, but there are stretches in our river where the habitat is just tough. Yeah. Especially because, you know, if we have low water, it's relatively, the banks are muddy, long, straight. It's silty, not sand, It's or it's silty, not gravel. And so what happens a lot of times in these rivers is there's only a few places that actually hold bass. And where they hold bass, it's good. A lot of times it'll be the lower end of the river towards the mouth. Obviously, that makes sense. There's more nutrients at the mouth. There's more cypress swamp type habitats and also the creeks. And then as you get above those creeks, sometimes there'll be long stretches where the habitat's just not the best. And if Seems like a desert sometimes. Yeah, certain times of year, you can go to Kinston, North Carolina and do awesome on bass. And other times of year, you can go to Kinston, North Carolina and you'll say, I need to call Ben because this place is terrible. <laughs> There's no bass left. So, and that may have been what was going on on the Ohio River. I mean, he's, the guy ran 60 miles for a reason. <laughs> it was probably to get to some better habitat. Well, and I'm not going to say the actual environment probably does change more on the river system than a reservoir or something like that. I'm sure. And I'm sure the habitat on that particular river changes year in and year out. That was my only experience there, but it was interesting in the fact that I could only see fish and find fish that were spawning, which didn't make a difference in the tournament. It was later on, but I was there for pre-practice and they were spawning on top of stumps like that. That's and, interesting. Uh, but as far as the the history of that fishery itself it's always you know a limit of fish that weighed six to eight pounds would win tournaments up there regularly and it's been like that for 25 years well that goes back to my old adage that i've had as a biologist since i've started with the wildlife commission not everything is meant to be everything right yeah and so (laughs) that sounds kind of weird but what i tell a lot of people that work for us we as biologists sometimes will sell that x lake or x reservoir should be great at everything and that's just not true 
it might be great at bass and be terrible at crappy, or it might be great at bass and terrible at everything besides bass. I mean, it just really depends. And so we have to be careful about equating that every body of water is going to be the same or something like that, which we talked about earlier. But it would be interesting to see like the Ohio River, like what the flow is and what the nutrient load is and what the substrate. I mean, as a biologist in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking there might be a lot of things at play. It might be water quality. There might be something in the chemistry of the water that's preventing their growth. I mean, you just don't know. But biologists there probably do, but without knowing all those factors, it's hard to say. If they hear this, they'll probably get mad at me for saying that. But they know, like, it's one thing for a lake like Norman or wherever in Jordan, you know, where we see them go through cycles, right? Ups and downs based on different variables. But in that system, it's pretty much sucked all its life. (laughs) So I don't have an explanation just from my little experience there, but I've watched tournament results over the years and they're always right in line with each other. They're always bad. All right. So. We're going to do a part two, so don't worry. We still got more to talk about. (laughs) But as I said at the beginning, we've gotten a lot of feedback from our listeners, a lot of awesome comments, and I picked a few for us to talk about. Some of them are bass-centric. Some of them are more related to some of our other podcasts, but we're going to go through them a little bit, and then we're going to call this one a wrap. So I think it'll be great. But the first question we have is from Mr. Jeff. He says he really likes our podcast. I picked this one specifically because we were going to be talking to Matt today. I'm actually from this area as well, so maybe I can add a little bit more. But he said he's very interested in learning the differences in fish in Lake Gaston versus Car Lake. <laughs> car, cur, bugs. Is a, what, it's you, car. It is car. All right. <laughs> so I always called it bugs because I had buddies that would argue with me. Cur, car. I just call it Bugs Island. Well, we know what we're talking about. That's the That's important right. thing. Yeah. Not to be confused with Kerr Scott. Right. Yes. Car Scott or Kerr Scott? It's whatever you want to call it today. <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> That's we a whole, whole nother podcast. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, he said the differences in fishing those two yeah, lakes. How, I guess, how would you approach fishing a Lake Gaston versus Bugs Island or Car? Well, however you feel to like. keep it not too complex, I think as bass anglers, sometimes it's so simple, we make it hard. A bass is a bass is a bass. No matter where you go, they just have a different environment. I'd be lying if I said I'm super familiar with the conditions of those lakes now because I have not fished them. I used to, I fished some BFLs on bugs back in the day. I've only fished Gaston one time in my life. But I think there's quite a bit of grass that's present in Gaston now, is there not? Yes. A hydrilla. Is it just hydrilla? No, or? we've been doing native vegetation work there for almost 20 years. Does it still have the bank grass and stuff? Yeah, there's a lot of vegetation on Gaston for and sure. Then, so what about bugs? I think it varies. It's year to year based on water depth and all that because it changes a lot more than Gaston does. And I know Bugs has herring. Does Gaston have herring also? Yes. Okay, so the approach would be somewhat similar, in my opinion, just because of the way the lakes lay out. You know, Gaston, you've obviously got a surplus of docks. It seems to be a little bit more developed than Bugs. I know Bugs has its fair share of docks, but I always base it on the, the forage availability. And if you want to catch the healthiest, biggest bass in the lake, I'd focus on the herring movements and things like that. But this time of year, if he's talking this time of year, I imagine the heron spawn, it might be starting to tail off right now, but that heron spawn can be, you talked about it a little bit earlier, Ben, that's a feast or famine deal, but when you get on that bite, man, it's fun, and it's some of the biggest and prettiest and healthiest fish in the lake, so I'd focus my efforts around the heron spawn. As far as comparing the two lakes, when I'm looking for a heron spawn, I'm looking for long, flat points, typically on the lower third of the lake. Seems to be where the bigger numbers of bass are and the bigger numbers of bait is on a reservoir, you know, like Gaston or Bugs, but then I'd start focusing my effort on those bluegill beds. 
those bluegill beds in the coming months are going to be really good on both of those fisheries and target them with the top water and things like that. You can have a lot of fun catching some really big fish. I'd keep it pretty similar on both the lakes. They don't seem to differ too much to me from what y'all are telling me the condition that they're in right now because I haven't fished them in years and years. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you said that because when I saw this question, I kind of thought, well, you know, I mean, <laughs> for those of you that don't know, one lake directly feeds into the other. Yeah, correct. And we didn't mention that. They're similar. You know, it'd be completely different if we were saying, let's compare, you know, Gaston to Jordan. You yeah, know, that might be a different right. comparison altogether. But these lakes are fairly similar. So I think if you find something that works in one, it'll translate fairly well to the other. And because of seasonal patterns, when you're talking about two lakes back to back on a system like that, the pattern that the fish are actually in should be very consistent with the one that's relatively close to it, unless you have something crazy like they're not moving water out of this one, but they are this one and the water levels are crazy different or something. But I'm assuming they stay fairly consistent there with each other. Car Lake or Bugs Lake is fairly deep, but it also has a lot of shallow water. So you might be able to find some earlier spawning fish, potentially, just because of, with shallower water, you may be able to find some beds earlier in the year than you would on Gaston. But again, Gaston's got shallow water too. So it's not like, okay, I'm going to fish this one for two weeks, then I'm going to switch to the other one. I don't think that type of strategy would really work unless you were just trying to get experience both places. Right. And one difference I didn't mention is Bugs, that water fluctuating when it's at 300, and don't quote me on this, but I usually around that 302, 303 number is that magic number for me to really go start and gravitate towards the willows and the buck brush. I don't know if Gaston has as much of it just due to the simple fact that it seems a little bit more developed than bugs. It's more regulated, too. It's more regulated. Yeah. So it, when you get that high water, it bugs in the spring and this time, even all the way through May and June, those fish, when you get that high water, they will gravitate to that that shoreline's cover and, and the buck brush and the willows. Willows are my number one go-to at bugs uh, when the water's up. And that's one difference in those two fisheries that he might look for is targeting those willow trees when they have a you know a couple feet of water on them, especially. Sure. Sure. So our next question is Mr. Rick. This one's Corey's. I know he's going to handle <laughs> this one awesomely. Way to set me up. Thanks. If you don't, I'm here for you. Bud. I appreciate the support. <laughs> Why do some lakes have huge crappie while other lakes have like more numbers? <laughs> oh boy, that's a podcast in and of itself <laughs> it right there. I picked this question because I wanted to tell you guys that we're going to be doing a podcast about crappie in the future. Yes, so absolutely. I'm planting a seed, so stay tuned. We'll really flesh this one out well, later. Well, I could really make some recommendations on some good guests for that too. <laughs> they might be in their 80s. But they would be good ones. Exactly. <laughs> um, so my first take is that you have to understand the life cycle of crappie. Crappie can be, in, when it comes to reproduction, can be very boomer bust. They're not consistent over a period of time. And so you might go five years and not have a really good reproduction. And then that six year might be just gangbusters. And you just get a lot of little fish in a very short period of time. And so... The two lakes that I like to compare are High Rock and Jordan, and they're very much the same lake in terms of their hydrology and their nutrient load and all that kind of stuff. But Jordan is going to consistently produce much larger crappie than, than High Rock is. And Jordan has a more consistent reproductive effort. So their reproduction is not, they don't have the big booms and busts that a lot of crappie populations have. They typically have reproduction every year. and they are consistently being fished pretty hard, too, at the same time, which helps alleviate some pressure if you do have a big boom year in terms of having a lot of little fish. High Rock's totally different. 
High Rock gets these large, high pulses of water coming down the Yadkin about once every three to five years. And when they get that large pulse, that's when we get this big, large reproductive class. And so it puts a lot of fish on the landscape. And they survive, and yet what happens is there's just not enough food to go around. So they typically were making cookie cutter, eight to nine inch crappie fairly consistently at High Rock, whereas at Jordan, it's not uncommon to catch 12 inch crappie. And it's all about food availability and the amount of fish that are on the landscape. And so High Rock will oscillate a little more. You'll get a lot of eight inch fish, but then there'll be years that you'll get a few bigger fish because they haven't had this boom reproductive year. Whereas Jordan is a very consistent reproductive cycle for crappie. I'm just glad to hear you call them crappy because all the guys I travel with say crappie. Well, and I say, you don't understand. They don't understand the English language, <laughs> yeah, but that's a whole other ball of wax. <laughs> Do you eat. think the, this is just from what I see as an angler, but it seems like timber lakes typically thrive. The crappy populations oh, yeah. thrive a lot better in timber lakes. They're a structure-oriented fish for sure. I mean, probably even more so than bass are, if that's even possible. A lot of timber in it still, right? Yeah, it has standing timber that's aging, but it has a lot of timber, particularly in the southern end of the lake that comes from the Hall River coming into the lake. But High Rock has a lot of timber too, and it's a great crappy lake. I'm not dismissing High Rock. It produces consistent eight to nine inch fish, which a lot of crappy anglers like to catch. But the question was, why do I have big fish in one place and not as big fish in the other? Right. Now, you can get into a situation with crappy in, in some lakes where consistently what you're catching are six-inch fish, and that's because of that high reproductive effort that they have. They basically stunt themselves out, and so they need to be thin. So you can get, especially in a lot of our municipal lakes, and a lot of people put them in their ponds, which can be the death of a pond. Don't do that. Don't do that. I, that's my advice. I mean, I know a lot of people, oh, I got big crappy in my pond. Well, you're lucky. You're one of a million. And it might only last so long, too, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And so they just have this ability to outreproduce a lot of different species of fish, and they outreproduce themselves, basically, is what they end up doing. And they end up just, there's so many of them that there's not enough food for them to eat. And therefore, they just can't get above like a six-inch fish. I mean, I can take you to numerous lakes in the Piedmont of North Carolina, and if you catch a six-incher, you've caught a trophy. We can set a trap net, which is the gear we use to catch them, and we might catch 500 fish in that trap net, and they'll all be five inches or less. And so you have to be really careful with crappy, especially in a very small, the smaller the system, the harder it gets. A 200-acre lake is really difficult to manage for crappy, whereas a 15,000-acre reservoir is a little bit easier because you got more space, more food, more everything for them. Has there ever been a slot put on crappies? Oh, we have size limits on crappies. Jordan Lake has Right, a, but it's just a minimum. Yeah, I don't know. Not in North Carolina. They just grow too fast. They okay. grow too fast and they die young. I mean, you can get older crappie. I've aged crappie that, that are, you know, like 16 years old. But for the most part, five, six, seven-year-old crappies, pretty old crappie, and then they're gone. They just really don't live a really long time. Now, in those stunted populations, you might catch a five-inch crappie, and it's literally... 10, 12 years old. Wow. They're growing like a eighth of an inch a year. <laughs> well, they grow and then they just stop yeah, growing. Yeah, they grow and then they quit. They're done. Well, I told you guys that Corey would be the guy to answer that question. Yeah, so I got it. My <laughs> I've done a lot of work on crappy. So. <laughs> and now, none of us are the right guy to answer this question, but it's a fairly easy one. So, I can lie with the best of them. Good fisherman. <laughs> Mr. Bonner, who says he's also bald, so... 
We got that going for Kudos us. Kudos to him. Yeah, good job. <laughs> the savings and shampoo alone are worth it. Exactly. Everybody should shave their head. Right. His question has to do with native trout waters in the state, and he wanted to know how long they've been existing in the mountains. And really, the answer to that is forever. There's pretty much been <laughs> trout there as long as there's been mountains there. So they've been there since the beginning. So thousands, millions of years. So whatever, however old trout are in general, there's been trout there. Yes, exactly. And so with that, we're going to call this one a wrap. I really want to thank Matt for joining us. It's been really interesting. I've learned a lot. and I feel like we've been all over the place, but I've learned so much while we've been all over the place. That's what we do. Every day is just a different herd of cats we try to get We're kind of wandering around, and that's okay. Thanks, Matt, for being here. We appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening in to North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's Talking Fishing with Two Bald Biologists podcast. If you would like more information, please visit us online at ncwildlife.org. If you have questions or topic suggestions, shoot us an email at twobaldbiologist at ncwildlife.org.